Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, we'll discuss the five myths about daylight saving time. We will discover that you can actually have breakfast at Tiffany's these days. We'll tell you about what people are doing to create hamburgers in a laboratory. We're going to give a salute to a kinder and gentler man, George H.W. Bush. And we're going to talk about a Japanese cybersecurity minister who doesn't use computers or understand cybersecurity. And the Old Dogs interview will feature a chat with Meryl Moritz, an internationally known personal coach who started adult life as a dancer. So, Jim, what's on your mind? Well, you know, all of the clutter in our lives these days, all of the things that we have to think about, and I was thinking about some of them that I would rather not have to think about anymore, things that have really basically outlived their usefulness. Oh, yeah, I've got one right away. Okay. Beauty contest for kids. I'm talking about five and six years old, get rid of them. Yeah, well, I'd like to see beauty contests in general go out the door. Um, how about uh, pet clothing? Have you noticed that when the weather oh. turns uh, cold or when? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially people that dress identical to their pets. <laughs> That's too far. Okay. Okay. I, I know a few people like that, but anyway. How about, here's another one. How about car sprays and the scent is new car? What the heck is the scent of a new car? Hey, have you been in my car lately? It doesn't smell like a new car. Well, it could. (laughs) It could with a little spray. Okay. All right. uh, How about reality shows? I mean, in general, I think all reality shows should go. But in particular, anything that starts off with the housewives. Of of fill in the blank. Yeah. Yeah, Right. I agree. Here's another one. Pretzels on an airplane. Get rid of them. They have no flavor. Just reminds me, we'll just hand out paper. We'll chew on paper. Here's what the problem I have with pretzels on an airplane, okay? You you eat the bag of pretzels, and then you want another one, and you try and catch another one, and then you have to drink because pretzels are salty. And then you know what happens to you after you've drunk something. No, what happens, Well, Jim? you're sitting on the window seat, right? And <laughs> yeah, then you have right. to cross two people to get to the bathroom, and then there's a line of ten people waiting to get in. Okay, let's get back to things that have outlived their usefulness. How about Chia Pets? And any Chia Pets that look like a celebrity? How about that? Can we get rid of those? Well, it depends on the celebrity. Okay, I know you have a collection. Okay, um... Well, this is something that we swore we would never get into, a word that we would never use, but i got to say, any ad that includes the word prostate is probably something I'd like to scratch off my watch list. <laughs> okay, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. How about lawyers that advertise on TV? The tough attorneys. Get rid of them, all oh, of them. Okay, I'm with you on that. Not just okay. the ads, the attorneys. Get rid of those two. Right, right. And finally, and boy, is this a hot topic this year in particular, how would you like to see the end of daylight saving time, huh? I'm ready for that one, especially when they keep moving the dates back and forth. You know, when uh-huh. does it start? When does it end? I'm always showing up either late or early. <laughs> or asleep. And Paul, speaking of daylight saving time, as it so happens, our first pod nugget is about daylight saving time. 
Yeah. Every spring when we spring forward or every fall when we fall back, yeah. questions are raised about daylight saving time. What's the purpose? Hoping to cast light on the subject, the Washington Post on March 6, 2015, explored five myths about daylight saving time. Well, here's myth one. Daylight saving time was meant to help farmers. Well, actually, farmers were opposed to daylight saving time. The lost hour of morning light meant they had to rush to get crops to market. Dairy farmers opposed it because it confused their cows who thought it was utter nonsense. Uh Uh-huh. We don't want confused cows. Myth two, the extra daylight makes us happier and healthier. Well, perhaps the extra vitamin D from the extended sunlight is good for us. However, studies suggest a spike in workplace accidents, suicides, and headaches when daylight saving time starts and ends. This would appear to be a bad trade that shouldn't be taken lightly. Here's myth three. It helps us to conserve energy. Well, in 2005, daylight saving time was extended a month to save four more weeks' worth of energy. It makes sense that an extra hour of natural light would conserve energy, but studies indicate that the decreased use of electrical lighting was offset by other uses of energy, such as air conditioning. So cooler minds prevailed. Myth number four. Daylight saving time benefits business. Chambers of Commerce lobbied for the extra month of daylight saving time in 2005, but not all industries love the time change. The Air Transport Association estimated that the scheduled juggling necessary to keep U.S. flights lined up with international travel cost the industry $147 million. The confusion over landing times brought a whole new meaning to jet lag. And myth number five, standard time is standard. Well, we are actually on daylight saving time for eight months of the year these days. It is the standard, not standard time. Doesn't it make sense to make daylight saving time the standard for 12 months of the year? Come on, we'd like to hear from you about this. Say, Jim, when was the last time you saw the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's? It's funny you asked. Actually, I've never seen the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's a favorite romantic comedy for many other boomers. (laughs) The film stars Audrey Hepburn as Holly Goat Lightly, a charmingly eccentric young woman navigating New York City as best she can. In the film's opening scene, Holly arrives at Tiffany's early in the morning dressed in a black cocktail dress and dark glasses. And as she gazes longingly in the store window, she drinks her takeout coffee and munches on a pastry. And then she strolls home. Well, it's a great opening scene, but really not much of a breakfast. Times have changed, though. Now you actually can have breakfast at Tiffany's. According to the Washington Post for October 12, 2018, you can now have a nice three-course breakfast in Tiffany's recently opened fourth-floor restaurant. As you can imagine, this small restaurant is a popular tourist stop for young women channeling Holly Golightly in their cocktail dresses and dark glasses. Breakfast is 32 bucks, which is, wow, modest by New York standards, and reservations are required. If you can't get a reservation, don't worry. For about five bucks, you can get a coffee and a Danish from a nearby deli and stare in Tiffany's window. Cocktail dresses are optional, although clothing of some sort isn't. We are all aware that animals grown for food have environmental costs and issues about unethical treatment. It's just not an efficient way to create food. But are you ready for lab-grown quarter-pounders? 
This news comes to us from the September 2018 issue of Scientific American. Several startup companies are busy developing man-made alternatives to beef, pork, poultry, and seafood. Believe it or not, this meat is made by first taking a tissue sample from the animal being duplicated. The stem cells are collected and multiplied until muscle tissue is formed. One company reports that a single tissue sample from a cow can yield 80,000 quarter pounders. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind that they are not duplicating a whole cow, just the muscle tissue. Two issues that have to be overcome are taste and expense. <laughs> Two pretty big ones there. No kidding. The first burger that came from the lab cost $300,000 and was dry from too little fat content. They've since brought the cost down to about 600 bucks, but they're still working on the taste concerns and a lack of interest from the general public. So we're asking you out there, are you interested in popping over to the lab for a burger and fries? Mm. We would like to hear from you. When George H.W. Bush died at the age of 94, November 30th, 2018, the outpouring of tributes reminded us of kinder and gentler political times. He was certainly well prepared to become president. He was a congressman for two terms, ambassador to the U.N., envoy to China, head of the CIA, and vice president for eight years. His presidential legacy may have been diplomacy. His firm and restrained international leadership helped restore a new world order after the collapse of the Soviet Union. In 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, Bush organized the 30-nation Desert Shield Coalition, and the Iraqi forces were quickly routed. Following the success of the war, his approval rating reached nearly 90%. However, a year and a half later, his approval rating had fallen to 29%. He was done in by a faltering economy and the third-party candidacy of H. Ross Perot. Above all, President Bush was a gentleman. He should be remembered for his decency, honor, and service to his country, qualities that seem to be in short supply these days. I know it seems like people appointed to federal jobs often lack the experience and interest to do a good job. In many cases, it's a payback for political support. Well, take heart. It isn't just our country. This news item comes to us from the Washington Post of November 23, 2018. The Japanese cybersecurity minister admitted that he doesn't use a computer. In fact, he isn't really that familiar with cybersecurity. Unfortunately, he's expected to give expert testimony on Japan's new cybersecurity law. As he explains it, his job is to read aloud written answers to cybersecurity questions that have been prepared by members of his staff. And he occasionally gets confused in that role since he doesn't really understand computers. Turns out, when asked how he got the job, he replied that he was there because a minister was needed in a recent cabinet reshuffle. Well, I guess willingness was more important than a resume, right? The Old Dogs interview today is with Meryl Moritz, a woman who has had some really interesting career changes. She started off as a dancer, but a fairly serious injury forced her to look at other options. She wound up in management consulting, did very well at it, but decided that that's not what she really wanted to do. Now, to help her identify her options, she hired a personal coach. And the product of that coaching was, strangely enough, finding out she had a talent 
for being a personal coach. Today, she's a very successful personal coach with national and international clients. Merrill, hello. Good morning. Good morning to you. This is Paul and this is Jim. Hi, and Paul. Hi, Jim. I'll tell you one thing I would be very interested in. You you have had some abrupt changes in your career from a dancer to corporate consultant to coach. Can you kind of take us through that, how those changes happened? Sure. Uh, my mother was a professional tap dancer, so I was being taught to dance and do what they called then acrobatics from the time I was about three. And so that was kind of part of my DNA. And I did that. Uh, partly I was lazy and partly I was really good at it. So, And I did that until I had a very serious injury when I was in my early 30s when I had to stop doing that. And, but fortunately, just before that, I had taken this great course that was sponsored by a group called Catalyst. And they did all things women at the time before anybody was doing anything like that, thinking that women needed any extra boost. So I took a workshop there. And when I was ready, after I got injured, I pursued what they said. And I ended up landing a job as a researcher for the world's largest public relations firm. And those folks sent me to grad school and I started a corporate career there uh, doing public relations evaluation. And that led to customer satisfaction assessment. And I was launched into a career on my own after about seven years as a corporate slave. And I, <laughs> so, so I started my own. And unfortunately, I, I created the same conditions of slavery in my own company. I had seven people working for me. I was working up to 90 hours a week and it was torture. And although it was very exciting, I did all sorts of work like interviewing people on the Human Rights Commission for the United States government on human rights issues in Iran. Uh, so it's really interesting work, but really crazy hours. And I uh, hired a coach to see if I could do something else with my life. I thought, wow, maybe I could do what he's doing. And he informed me that I could do that if I forgot everything I ever knew. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to school for a couple of years. And um, while I was still running my business, I just let people who were working for me leave by attrition and I, you know, started to coach, but uh, it took me five years really before I really recognized that the people I was working with were experts in their own lives and their business. And I just needed to ask them questions about that using the insights I have from organizational sociology, which is what I went back to grad school for. Do you think that in your life, your changes were a result of planning or were they a result of just saying yes to opportunities that came your way? I would say the first, being a dancer, was the result of, you know, accident of birth. Um, and then I didn't find anything more interesting than, you know, choreography and dance uh, to devote my attention to. I was really married to that idea. The whole thing for the second career was very planful. Um, I didn't understand that I would be looking into research. I was looking into public relations, but not into research. That part was kind of serendipitous because the man who ended up being one of my, you know, um, information interviews, 
he said I'd researched my career move so well, he thought I could be a great researcher. And indeed, I had been researching everything, you know, including recipes since I was, you know, a teenager. So it was a good fit. He sort of named what I had been doing. So that part of it, uh, part of it was plan and part of it was serendipity and just being open to the serendipity of it all. And I guess the coaching part, I wasn't planning to be a coach. I hired a coach. And then I learned from that experience, there was another way to use a lot of the prodigious skill set that I had without having to be the expert in someone else's life and have the answers for everyone, which is extremely stressful. So as a coach, I'm kind of a gadfly. You know, I ask them, I ask them really great questions and keep following their thinking and ask them, you know, the devil's advocate kind of questions and then help them hone what they want to do with the insights they get. I don't have to be their expert. Well, you're, you're sort of touching on it, but uh, for people that are listening in that have no idea what a coach is, could you give us a capsule definition of the profession? So sure. So what is a coach is essentially it's both a partnership and it's a process. Um, insofar as it's a partnership, the coach is someone who is kind of a witness, a curious cross-examiner, a synthesizer, playing back what you heard, a mirror, standing there in the corner with your satin robe and your towel and your water bottle when you get <laughs> duked around by the things you thought you wanted to do and they didn't work out that well. So in that way, it's a partnership, um, always being there and always being a sounding board and an accountability advocate as well, staying on goal, on task, on strategy for what you said you wanted when you came to coaching. Um, they usually come to coaching saying they want to start something, they want to do something better, or they want to stop something. You know, Beryl, uh, for coaches starting out, uh, they are usually advised to define their client base. Oftentimes, uh, it's because they had a career in another field and they're leveraging that field into a coaching practice. Is that something you have done? Uh, have you focused on a, a certain type of client? Yeah, because I was an entrepreneur. Lots of people were throwing people who were entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs at me, and I found them very exhausting to work with. For a long time, people wanted to throw me at women who were hitting the glass ceiling in organizations, but I never hit a glass ceiling myself. I escaped. I started my own business, and a lot of people do that. A lot of women did do that at that time. So, you know, my best shot is with people who have big responsibilities and have to maintain a big picture and hold that and remain agile instead of frozen in place with their own default method. Well, speaking of big pictures, this is a, a great opportunity to ask you about what you're currently involved with, because you talk about change, uh, the changes that are going on in the world right now, and the great challenges to find a path to world peace. You're working to use coaching to solve issues about around world peace through religious rather than geopolitical understanding. Yeah, and um, so where it came from? was a priest who is a charismatic healer. This is a priest comes from Argentina and has been holding healing masses for years. Um, he became an advisor to me on something else. We got to know each other, and um, he said that, you know, he liked what I had been doing in Cuba, and did I think I could apply coaching to a bigger space? 
I said, sure, what's the space? He said, world peace. And I said to people, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm really interested in seeing how open dialogue can actually create an opportunity for people to hear each other in a different way. So there's a possibility that we can coach chaplains in the uh, U.S. Armed Services on this topic of peace, you know, talking to warriors about peace. Coaches aren't chaplains, but we're wanting to have this dialogue. So we have, you know, 30, 35,000 people as part of the International Coach Federation are all willing to have this conversation with people in their countries or people of their religion. What if we could heal that? I mean, I mean, I strongly believe that coaching could be a technology to end war. Well, I have one more question. I wonder now to turn the question back to you. What are you currently getting out of this? What does all of this mean to you as you grow into what I like to call the third half of life? (laughs) What does it mean to you? My progenitors, to say the least, nobody retired before they were in their 80s sometime in their 80s. And my husband was always saying to me, like, are you going to wait till you like your grandfather, or your father retired? I said, I don't plan to retire. I don't see the need to retire. I mean, I have uh, work that I would do if I weren't paid. They used to say, you know, find your dream job that you would do even if you weren't paid. Well, I did. I didn't find it on purpose, but I found it at helping People, So I have a dream, you know, that there's a world where anyone wants a coach has access to one, someone who, who really is their advocate and helps them really leverage all that's great about them. You know, if we're going to save our planet, we're going to have to save our relationships first and then together maybe we could save the planet. I guess my feeling is that there's something worth saving here and it's people. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey, keep on howling at the moon.